Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your host. I'm Abby. And I'm Erica. Today, we're going to be telling you guys about the infamous serial killer, H.H. H. Holmes. Today, I am currently drinking some Bada coffee. It's their iced vanilla latte. As you know, one of my faves. Today, I'm drinking some hot coffee that I made here at home. It is Folgers, <laughs> and they recently came out with a hazelnut flavor of their Gross. coffee. It's Abby's favorite, and so I got it. I also have water. Gotta stay hydrated. <laughs> so grab yourself some coffee and let's dive in. We will continue on with our content for this week's episode shortly, but first we wanted to take a moment to let you know about an opportunity to listen to even more Crime Over Coffee content. By signing up for our Patreon, you can receive ad-free episodes and additional content. To check out this opportunity and sign up for the Crime Over Coffee Patreon, visit www.patreon.com slash crimeovercoffeepod. Thank you again for all of your support. Herman Webster Mudgett was born May 16, 1861 in Gilmington, New Hampshire to Levi Mudgett and Theodate Price. He was born into a really wealthy family with four siblings. His father, Levi, was a farmer who sometimes worked as a trader and a house painter. Herman's parents were devout churchgoers and Herman attended church with them each week. From reports about his childhood, he grew up with everything he could ever want or need. There's not any reports that I could find of any sort of child abuse or unusual circumstances that really occurred in his childhood outside of kind of some of his own things, I guess. He was said to be incredibly intelligent for his age throughout his whole childhood. He was repeatedly bullied by peers, though, and I didn't really see why. I don't know if it was because he was incredibly smart and other kids just didn't like that or if there was something else kind of going on. As a kid, Herman was weirdly fascinated by skeletons and obsessed with death. So it's also possible that this was the main reason that Piers kind of bullied him. Not saying that it was okay, but I just couldn't find anything else specifically that would have led to this type of bullying. I think that he was probably kind of seen as an outsider because these were interests of his. And it's not something that is pretty typical for kids. Because of this interest that he had, he actually started performing surgery on animals. He always had an interest in medical-related things, and he felt like performing these surgeries on animals could help him to kind of participate in medical activities, I guess. It also, I think, was he had a lot of curiosity about the way that bodies worked and stuff, and so this was his way of figuring that out i guess so like surgeries or like dissections i'm going to assume that it was most likely dissection unless because i'm assuming these animals were surviving the surgeries he may have opened them up and done something and then (laughs) sewed them back up so they used the word surgery and everything that i saw but i don't know and i don't know what kinds of animals I, i know none of that i'm gonna be honest I didn't look a whole lot into that because I didn't 
didn't want those details. The, the sentence that he started performing surgery on animals is enough for me. It was also reported that Herman was extremely cruel towards smaller children. And there was some speculation, and I couldn't really find a whole lot of information about it, but there was some speculation that he may have been responsible for a childhood friend's death when he was younger. I mean, aside from the fact that there's not any apparent records of abuse or unusual circumstances, this is already sounding like what you typically hear for a young serial killer or a young kid who grows up to be a serial killer. These are very big trademarks or what have you that you hear about often. Yeah, for sure. Things that should definitely be flagged, things that are concerning. I mean, the extreme intelligence is something, not to say everybody who's extremely smart, but that's something that could be flagged. The obsession with death, the fascination of skeletons, the surgery and cruelty towards animals and young children. Like, there's a lot of different things that kind of point to some concerning qualities. I'm not even 100% sure if a childhood friend did die or if they, it's just kind of speculated that one of his friends died. I, cause, and you'll hear as we go throughout, a lot of people that are around Herman, later on known as H.H. Holmes, is kind of speculation like there's not a whole lot of things that are 100% with him at least legally there's not a whole lot of things that tie him officially right so you know we we typically give like a disclaimer for some of these bigger cases this is definitely one of those where there's a lot of information and it's obviously very infamous so people have looked back and interjected what they think happened or um, victims a, a tribute to Holmes that it's not proven and so I came across that too a little bit there's a lot of speculation so we're gonna really try to pull on some of that but also pull on the facts at the age of 16 Herman does graduate from high school and in 1878 so when he was 17 years old he ends up marrying Clara Lovering who is the daughter of a really wealthy family as well and Clara and Herman end up having a son together in 1880. In 1879, so now Herman's 18 years old, he enrolls in the University of Vermont, where he is starting to study, I believe, medicine here at this college as well. He ends up leaving after a year. I didn't find much about what had happened here. There may not have been a whole lot that happened in Vermont necessarily. I mean, he had a young son while he was like attending it. So I don't know if maybe the fact that he had a young son encouraged him to end up kind of dropping out of that college. Either way, he dropped out after a year, took two years off, and then in 1882, he was accepted into medical school at the University of Michigan. While he was attending school there, he worked in the anatomy lab under the chief anatomy instructor. Also, at some point in time, I'm not exactly sure when, he apprenticed under Dr. Nahum White and this guy was a noted advocate of human dissection in New Hampshire. And so it's believed that this kind of further developed Herman's interest in death. Now, I don't know, I mean, a noted advocate of human dissection. So I'm going to say he was in full support of dissecting human bodies for science is kind of like what I'm gathering. Yeah, I mean, in this time period too, that's when they're really starting to like make some more medical advances and look at the human body and how it works. 
So I'm guessing it's one of those things where he was pushing for them to kind of make these new discoveries and figure out what's going on in the human body so that you can try to come up with solutions for disease or injuries and whatnot. Which is super interesting. Like, that's a great field to get into. But I don't know that it was the best for Herman at the moment. Oh, no, I'm sure not. And this is just a fun fact because I attended um, a lecture last year where they were talking about this time period and like the medical field and whatnot. But human dissections back in the day, like way back in this time period, were like this huge spectacle. You know, obviously today you can learn from video or there's a lot more professors and teachers. But like back then, because the field was so small, they would have these huge, massive like lecture halls, basically. And then like someone dissecting someone or performing surgery down in the bottom, like kind of in like an arena pit type of deal. So everyone could watch and learn from it and it's so bonkers if you ever get a chance look up some of the old like medical books or look up those kind of things it's it's really crazy because we're so far evolved from it and it's it's very interesting i think and no i'm not a serial killer (laughs) that is really interesting not something i knew about thank you for clarifying you're not a serial killer (laughs) i I guess i could see that though you know it's it's new and so everybody kind of wants to know what's going on so that makes sense mm-hmm. herman was very interested in this though and so the anatomy lab that he worked in had a lot of cadavers in it which are dead human bodies that are used for this type of research that we we're talking about herman would actually start stealing cadavers from the lab and he would burn them he would disfigure them he would paint their bodies and make them look like they'd been killed in an accident. And also one of the things that he was known for doing was taking out life insurance policies on these cadavers and then making it look like they died in a certain way so that he could collect the insurance policies. He also was known to have profited by stealing the cadavers and the skeletons and then selling them to others. And I don't know i can assume that the people he was selling these to were probably not doctors or people who were going to use them for medical purposes but i I could be wrong maybe it was but i'm gonna assume it was kind of like black market-ish yeah that's kind of interesting i do wonder if it was like that or if he was selling them to other like medical facilities i know there's a history about like in asylums and whatnot, like when people would die, if the bodies are unclaimed, they would sell them to different entities to make a profit off of the cadavers. So I would imagine maybe, you know, before they kind of got these laws in place of what can happen, it was good, bad way to make some extra money. Bad, because obviously that's very unethical, but lucrative, probably. Oh, I'm sure. It makes my skin kind of crawl just to know that there's mm-hmm. this happening it's also incredibly unfair to the individuals who passed away and the family members of the individuals who passed away that are like i'm gonna donate my body to science or you know i'm gonna donate my loved one's body to you because i want you to discover all these new medical advancements and stuff and then awful things happen or like unconventional and unethical things occur either way this was just the beginning of some of the really sketchy and once again unethical and illegal and creepy things that Herman did over the years. So as a reminder, Herman is currently married to Clara still. They still have their son. And there is a lot of 
conversation about how Herman is treating Clara violently and being very abusive towards her and just overall not a great husband nor father. So in 1884, which would be about six years after the two got married, Clara took their son and they moved back to New Hampshire and they never saw Herman again, which hindsight is 2020, probably a very, very good decision on Clara and her kids part. Motherly instinct probably came in here and she was like, I need to get my son out of this situation overall for the best. In 1884, Herman passes all of his exams, all of his medical exams, and he graduates college. And so he moves to Morris Forks, New York. Pretty quickly, a rumor spreads that Herman had been seen with this little boy who then later disappeared, which you guys will hear is a very common theme for Herman. So Herman claimed that he had been with this little boy, but the little boy didn't disappear with him. He went back to his house in Massachusetts. The city didn't really believe him, and I think Herman kind of knew it. However, for whatever reason, no investigation took place. So nobody confirmed or denied what Herman said about this little boy going back home. And Herman very quickly dipped out of town. Not suspicious at all. Once again, we're going to see a pattern. And because this is the 1800s, we're going to see our favorite thing of not, like jurisdictions not communicating just I mean, mainly because they couldn't at this point, not really. So we're going to see a lot of, you know, you jump from one county to another and you kind of just get away with it. Nobody really kind of pays attention or puts pieces together if you're not in the same town at this time. So the next town that he goes to is Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And there he gets a job as a keeper at Norristown State Hospital. He only works there for a few days, though. And then he ends up leaving, quitting. Not sure what made him quit could make some guesses, but don't have any solid answers for that. So he then goes to work in a drugstore in Philadelphia. But while he's working there, there is an incident where a little boy purchases medication from the store that he's working at and then shortly dies later with unexplained circumstances. So they're not exactly sure what killed him. The medication is slightly suspicious in the situation because while the little boy was sick i don't believe he was deathly sick until he took this medication from my understanding herman immediately said i was not involved in this child's death i didn't do it i don't know why you guys are blaming me and immediately leaves the city again now i do not know if herman was if police immediately started asking him questions after this little boy died specifically him or if he personally just felt guilty and so he kind of came out and was like it wasn't me and then left like if it was like a guilty conscience talking yeah or the parents were like hey he was okay he just needed this medication he wasn't deadly what's changed it's this maybe and if that was a conversation yeah but for it to be directly pinpointed back to Herman, I feel like it's a little mm-hmm. odd. I guess if he was the direct person that sold him meds, I don't know. Still, I feel like it's kind of weird to specifically pinpoint him out. The medication, sure, but... So the next place we see him is probably where he's most infamously known, and that is in Chicago. And I found, of course, mixed reports on dates. He either moved there in 1885 or 1886. Not a huge deal. So sometime in that time frame, he moves there and he gets a job working at a pharmacy called Holton's. And it's run by Dr. Edward Holton, who was a fellow Michigan alumni. And so he was just a couple years older than Herman. And I don't know that they knew each other in 
in school necessarily, but they were able to bond over the fact that they had gone to the same school together. So they start working together. At this point, Herman changes his name. So when he first comes to Chicago, from what I understand, he didn't even come to the Chicago with the name Herman. He comes there as Dr. Henry H. Holmes, which is where H.H. Holmes comes from. So from here on out, I'm going to refer to him as H.H. It's believed that he probably changed his name from Herman Mudgett to H.H. Holmes because he was trying to hide from all of those insurance scams that he had committed when he was under the name Herman. And the easiest way to do that was to no longer be that person. When Dr. Edwin Holton passes away, which is in about 1886, 1887, not very long after H.H. arrives in Chicago, the doctor ends up giving his store to his wife but very quickly hh convinces the widow to let him buy the store the reason i want to point out that it wasn't very long after hh arrived in chicago that the drugstore owner passed away is because i think there's some suspicion there we've covered a lot of these stories where it's people from the 1800s or the early 1900s where they're everywhere they go people around them are starting to die and it makes you want to ask questions and be a little more suspicious about what's happening. And so often it's linked to a money scheme too. For sure. That was a very common issue back then. So once HH is able to buy the store from the wife, she ends up going missing and she is never seen again. Once again, suspicious. Nobody knows what happened. I don't know how much investigation went into it. HH said she moved to California. That's all I know. She left town. But that was never verified. Whether it wasn't verified because nobody looked or it wasn't verified just because it couldn't be, I I don't have an answer. Once again, 1800s, people can run away and escape pretty easily, change their names, disappear, all of that. So now HH is the owner of the drugstore. And so he decides that there's this empty lot across the street. And he's like, I kind of want to purchase that. I've got an idea for it. So in 1887, he purchases that lot and begins designing and building a three-story building which later becomes referred to as the castle. So in 1886, H.H. meets a new woman named Myrda Belknap in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And while he is still technically legally married to Clara, he does end up getting married to Myrda. And over time, the two of them end up having a daughter together as well. So now this is the second child of H.H., Supposedly, H.H. does file for divorce from Clara a few weeks after he married Myrda, saying that she was not faithful during their marriage, but nothing could be proven. And so the file for divorce doesn't ever go anywhere. And supposedly from paperwork, Clara and H.H. never officially got divorced. The divorce was never finalized. So throughout this time, H.H. is still working on his castle in Chicago. So the castle was going to start out with two floors. The second floor would be apartments and the first floor would be retail spaces and a new drugstore would also be there. So I think he was probably going to sell the other piece of land where his drugstore was and then move it to that area. There's a lot of issues that kind of occur during this time and HH continuously declines to pay contractors. He is coming up with all these different excuses. He keeps hiring contractor contractors and then he'll fire them and then he'll hire new contractors and then he'll fire them. And some of the contractors start trying to sue him. The first lawsuit comes in 1988. 
but it's believed that the main reason that he kept firing people was hiring and firing people was because he didn't want people to know exactly what he was building in there. But it's also believed that he was trying to just say they did a terrible job. So I had to fire them and then he wouldn't have to pay them. It was kind of his process. It was just a whole scam. Police would later determine that HH did not pay a dime for any of the materials that went into the building because of this scam that he ran the whole time. That's honestly kind of impressive in a way. (laughs) In the wrong way. I would agree. I mean, it took years to build this, but he somehow was able to just scam enough people that he was able to get it done for free. So in 1891 is when construction was officially completed of the first two stories. So construction was officially completed in 1891. And here's kind of what the castle entailed which you guys probably know if you're familiar with the story it is later given the name the murder castle so it's three stories as i mentioned it was initially supposed to be two but he adds a third story and the third story contains his living quarters along with many other small rooms also his office so these rooms were soundproof. They contained gas lines that HH would have available to asphyxiate guests if he wanted to. There were also a bunch of trapdoors, peepholes, stairways that led nowhere, and chutes that led into the basement that was placed throughout the whole building as well, which is a big reason that he was changing those contractors so that nobody really knew what he was designing in there. The basement contained HH's lab, which had a table for dissecting, a stretching rack, and a crematory, which first off, and I get that he was a doctor, but it bothers me that he was just able to chuck a crematory in here. I don't, I just feel like those shouldn't be placed anywhere. That's besides the point. What happened down in that basement is awful and terrible, and we don't exactly know everything that happened. There, obviously, he had a crematory, so there are reports that he would burn bodies in there. There's reports that he would burn bodies in acid. He would cremate them. With the burning of the acid, he would remove flesh from the bodies and then sell those skeleton models to medical schools to make money. There just a whole lot of awful things were occurring, like I said. And we'll go into more of those details, not in-depth gross details, because I don't want to talk about them. That is as gross as we're going to get is the conversation that we just had. As gross as I'm going to get. I can't promise what Abby's going to do. That'll all be talked about in part two. So construction's complete. I've kind of described what the murder castle looks like to you guys. Sort of. It's not exactly known, but... So at this point, H.H. places ads in newspapers where he is offering jobs for young women and advertising the castle as a place to stay for a while. He also is placing ads presenting himself as a wealthy man looking for a wife at this time. At this time, he's still married to Murda, so we're going to see some unfaithfulness in episode two. But I'm going to leave you with one last thing to just kind of think about here. All of HH's employees, hotel guests, fiancés, and wives were required to have a life insurance policy. And HH, out of the kindness of his heart, made a deal with them. Please, please, please 
get the sarcasm in that statement, made a deal with them that if they listed him as the beneficiary, he would pay the premiums for their life insurance policies. So over time, I'm sure you could assume what happened to those individuals. It was reported that over time, the neighborhood would see many people enter the castle, but they never saw him exit. Okay, and that is all for part one of this very creepy story. And you can all join us back next week for part two, where we start to dive into some more of the things that Erica kind of hinted at earlier. So thank you all for listening. Thanks to listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. All of our sources can be found in the show notes for each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. You can also support us by recommending us to friends and family, giving us a good review on Apple Podcasts, or subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.